0: everybody to ricochets no dumb questions i'm james lilacs and you may ask what do you mean by no dumb questions well that's a really stupid question see there's <laughs> there's no dumb questions but there are stupid questions no think of it like this on reddit they call it Explain it like I'm five, because somebody who's marinating on a subject matter, of course, knows everything about it. Um, But somebody who doesn't, uh, you know, is hesitant to ask about it because it'll seem like a dumb question, like everyone should know. Well, no, we're all ignorant when it comes to things, and it helps to get people who are in the thick of it to tell us what's going on and ask them questions. There are no dumb questions. So, as I said, I'm James Lalix. This is Ricochet. And our guest is Deborah J. Saunders. You may have heard her before on our podcast. She's a syndicated columnist and a fellow with the Discovery Institute's Chapman Center for Citizen Leadership. For years, she wrote a column for the San Francisco Chronicle before taking a new job as the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal from 2017 to 2021. Her six-episode podcast, how about that a podcast that actually starts and then ends, you know, like a great crime story, is called Covering Trump. And you can find that on the Ricochet Podcast Pat, Podcast Network along with other things in which I stumble over like I just did. And that'll tell a great story. With the help of Ricochet's universally very fine subscribers who are very smart people, we're going to be firing away questions to round out the series, put a pin in it, as we say, and uh, welcome to No Dumb Questions, Deborah. How are you today?
1: I'm great, James. How are you doing?
0: Well, I'm in Minnesota, where it's about 30 degrees, I imagine, in Las Vegas. Are you starting to get those cold desert nights or or not?
1: I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. When and I'm, I think I'm freezing, but I know you're colder.
0: <laughs> I guarantee you I do. I lived out in D.C. myself as a while. I was not a White House correspondent, but I did have a little special badge with a color flag behind me to indicate what levels of access I would get. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, first thing we should do before we get to the Donald Trump covering the whole White House thing is talk about you, uh, what your life was like before the Trump era, let's call it. Now, you were the conservative columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and that's not exactly a city that's that's known for its flamingly crimson red politics. So, I, you know, I'm a columnist at a paper that is generally center liberal uh, mm-hmm. called the Red Star by some. And I, uh, so I kind of know what it's like to maybe not be in total utter sync with the rest of the people. Although <laughs> nowadays there's no one at the paper, so I'm no one to be out of sync at. How was it like for you? Did, did they regard you as one of the good people and that, well, she believes these things you know, but, but she's okay. Or did you find that some people upon meeting you were, Oh, you believe those things that says it all. What was your life like at the Chronicle?
1: I was a freak. So I was at the San Francisco Chronicle writing a conservative column for 24 years, hmm. and it was a target-rich environment. The paper really knew that they needed to have somebody like me, that they couldn't all have cheerleaders. Um, but it was, you know, you can imagine it was difficult. People would all ask me, how how did I last that long? And all of a sudden, I started thinking, maybe I shouldn't be here anymore. It's I'm hmm. really glad. So I quit. The day after Election Day 2016, I gave notice, and I'm so glad Mm -hmm. I did because I can't imagine what it would have been like working Mm -hmm. there when Trump was president. It would have been crazy. Like really bad times. The Florida recount. Mm -hmm. That was bad. Mm -hmm. I'd walk through the newsroom and people would start yelling at me, and I'd say, you know, if you want to yell at me about something I wrote, I'll argue with you about it. But if you're just yelling at me because you don't know any Republicans, make a new friend.
0: Uh-huh. I'm not doing that. So. Yeah, I've never had that. I mean, I get along with just about everybody in my newsroom. But I do sometimes feel like my pod, my 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 desk is the is the petting zoo for you know for <laughs> for, for people of a different ideological perspective, which is great sometimes when they come in and seek you out because after Trump won, I actually had people in my office come up and say, uh, "We." Missed that. We did not see that coming. We misjudged the temper of the state outstate. And one of the things our paper actually did after that was to start opening bureaus elsewhere in the state to, to, to get out and and to listen to people more, which I thought was great. One of the reasons I like my paper. But did you find people would come up? Sure, they're going to be some who want to argue, but some who would come up to ask a genuine question about an ideology they did not have uh, belly feel for, as Orwell would put it.
1: Sure, that happened. And, I mean, I talked about how people were sort of angry during Florida. I loved the people I worked with. I respected them. We got along great. But there were times when things were really tense. Um, election night 2016, I saw people crying. Mm-hmm. Um, there were times when people's tempers are up. And as I said, I mean, I, I, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Trump's first inauguration speech. I was there. On the Capitol watching him make the speech, but I can imagine if I had been in the newsroom that there would have been a lot of people who would want to come and see if I was as appalled as they were. Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of what you're talking. People are like, hey, I'm really appalled by what the right's doing, aren't you?
2: Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. your
1: chance to prove you're a good conservative.
0: Yeah, I get that too from some people. Um, it, it, it and you don't know how to respond to it exactly because you, you want to say, "I know what you're doing here." I, I mean, nothing devious about it. I know, I, I get it, but mm-hmm. I if the only time I'm brought me what I particularly believe is brought up, it, it, because I have to then deny. All these other this this vast seething horde of madness out there. No thanks. When mm-hmm. I was in DC, I worked in a news bureau that was um for New House News Service, which no longer has the heft that it did. And during the Clinton inauguration, you could just tell there was this giddy buzz, just you know, all the newsrooms. It was they rented out a room in a hotel so everybody could watch. I it was it was just it was like a sleepover. Everybody was so <laughs> delighted about it. But they would never believe that even though they were all of a mindset, they would never believe believe that they were anything else other than objective, which I found to be peculiar. Um, how mm-hmm. do you view the, the level of objectivity that you saw in the mainstream media in your uh, long and distinguished career? Was it truly ob- objective when it came to, I mean, people are objective about a car accident, right? Or a bank holdup. But how objective were they really?
1: They think they're objective, as, as you just said. They mm-hmm. think they are, but they think that their positions are neutral. Right. They don't understand that they have a bias, and so they think that they're neutral. They think they're objective, and they're just not. I'm, I'm not saying I am. I know. I, I know I have a political perspective, but um, they buy their spin. I, on occasion, I'd press back sometimes and. They'd say, well, you know, of course, journalists are liberal because liberals are smarter than other people. And, you know, you get stuff like that sometimes. But, um, you know, I, again, I love people I worked with. We had disagreements.
0: Um, I know what you mean. And, and part of it is when you, you say that, that, that liberalism is the defi- is, the, is the default position for smart people. Because it is tolerant, it is open-minded, it is empirical, it believes in science, and all of the other things that fit on that that sign that people put in their yards to proclaim their virtue. <laughs>
2: um,
0: and it's also because it's reinforced constantly by every other media stream that they that they uh, that they access if they go to work listening to National Public Radio and they get to work and they read the Washington Post and the New York Times and the rest of it. Um, this is the received wisdom of the way things are, and conservative ideas are are curious outlier that's that uh like a moon with an irregular strange orbit that, that 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 goes around this beautiful blue planet
1: There's so yeah somebody it's... in their family who voted for trump
0: mhm and then they what voted did they for do they right. they
1: have a relative so they really do understand conservatives
0: <laughs> you, do you think so <laughs> i never i never ever in a million years um found that their presumptions about what i believed and why well true. So you were a, a conservative columnist though when you did, how did it feel to sail into the teeth of the gale on a, on a regular weekly basis knowing that the the majority of the people out there in this city are predisposed to argue with your with every word including the article the I mean, how did you, how did, did that inspire you to keep at it or did it get wearying at some point? Because I like to think that when I write that my audience is leaning in towards me, I've read a non-political column, so it, it's not a problem, but I, I assume a certain amount of fellow feeling and goodwill and the rest of it. I can't imagine what it would be like psychically for a quarter of a century mm-hmm. to not have that. How did you do it? I don't know. Yeah.
2: it just did it 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 was my
1: job i enjoyed it um people there were people who hated my guts but i have to say there were a lot of people in the bay area who wanted to have a different voice Mm -hmm. they realized that they needed to hear something else and they were glad that it was there so um and you know there it it worked for me until it didn't
0: did you have a um I, when you quit, when Trump was elected, you should have just said, "My work here is done." And left like that. <laughs> D- did you have a bug? Are you a little little photograph of yourself in the paper? Yes. Okay. Did you get? Did, did you ever get stopped in the street at the grocery store, and somebody wanted to harangue you about something? You said
1: not very often. It's oh. and, and I take I take Bard into work. So mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I was all over the place. Yeah, you know, I mean, people would recognize you when you're covering stuff, and there are people who are involved. As you know, not everybody reads the paper, not everybody looks at things. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of people who didn't like me, but I did pretty well. I mean, I had mm-hmm. a lot of loyal readers, uh, people who agreed and people who disagreed, and it was um, it was a nice opportunity. It's nice to write to pe- to people who aren't just trying to push you further and further into the corner you're already standing in.
2: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I
1: like the challenge. Um, and look, for issues like the homeless, that paper needed me. The San Francisco Chronicle needed somebody who could talk about the fact that it's not a good thing to walk down the street and see needles on the sidewalk. It's not really a good thing to see people shooting up at lunch crowds. Panhandling, not a good thing. I went through um, 2015, I did a series, Stench in the City, all about how much San Francisco stank. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- these were things that a lot of people who disagreed with me politically on a number of issues felt that they were really glad that there was somebody writing for the paper. Who would look at things that way?
0: the The problem is is that the minute you get beyond that into reasons and solutions, all of a sudden you're 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 in a whole different argument because while you will, everybody can agree that it's not right to have these people shooting up in the street. and it's not right to have them defecating in the corner and the rest of it. Uh, if you don't say that the problem is landlordism and systemic capitalism, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, then then of course, there's no point talking to you. But still, can, newspapers can I, can... are there. I, I'm sorry, did you were going to say?
1: Let me just offer something about on this subject. I've been thinking about it a lot. Mm-hmm. I find it really shocking that Gavin Newsom was reelected as handily as he was mm-hmm. after he effectively closed down schools for a year and a half. And you would think that I mean, I think of California as that place where you people, you know, crammed into a VW bus and headed out to the coast with their surfboard and looking for adventure and instead the, the the state has turned into this fearful place where uh they were to- people were told not to go to the beach and they didn't during covid they were told to not go to restaurants and they when when somebody did go to a restaurant it was wrong and, th- and there was a you know there was a mob of people who would go after you so it, it just sort of astonishes me that we now it's pretty clear to people that the covid closures went way too far and that they were especially of all groups hurt children the most and yet parents still overwhelmingly voted for the people who did that to them because they can't think of themselves as anything other than anti-trump and Mm -hmm. they associated closures with being anti-trump and so there's this whole identity thing they just can't even think I mean, you'll often hear people on the left talking about how much they revere science, but they didn't listen to science. The CDC never said to close schools, ever. And so that's the sort of thing that one would have to contend with.
0: They listened to the science. Well, they listened to Fauci, who they believed to be the embodiment made flesh of science on Earth. In my local uh, little store where you go to buy a birthday present, Desperately, at the last moment, there were were votive candles with Fauci's picture on the side Mm -hmm. and a mug that had WWFD. What would Fauci do? And it would seem strange that the people who believed in the science were finding religious and emotional <laughs> means to express supposedly this clear-eyed empirical view. But you're right. It has to do with identity. Because if, And perhaps one of the reasons that he was elected, as handily as he was, was none of the people who believed deeply in in the joy of following the rules, of being the person who knows the right things to do, wanted to admit that they were wrong, which is hard to do. Tough. Mm-hmm. newspapers though, uh, though we, do they still have a, maybe here's the, here's the dumb first dumb question. Is there a future? Is there a point? I'd like to think so because I love them, but we all know the challenges of the industry. And we all know that the idea of that paper sheaf with its serendipity and its, its culmination of the previous day, uh, it, generationally is just absolutely expiring. What do you think is going to happen to the industry going forward?
1: You're going to see less and less paper, but you're still going to have newspapers. Or we'll call them newspapers and or news organizations, and they'll be online, and they'll just be more and more of that. I, I think that that means that you have a lot more um, freelancing, and that can be good and bad. Uh, obviously, if a lot of people are just setting up shop, they may not understand how you fact check something. Uh, things that you want to do to make sure you get a story right. But um, let's face it, right now we're, there are so many echo chambers, it's it's uh, not a good time for objectivity, I don't think.
0: Well, there's a couple of things to that. One, there was a period in American journalism history where there was a institutional shift away from partisan papers, at least nakedly partisan papers as it used to be. In which there was sort of the Cronkite technocratic Robert McNamara best and brightest received wisdom in the fifties and sixties, right? Mm-hmm. Or am I am I making that up? Were there and it was liberal, but it was it was it was grounded in American. You still have the feel of American exceptionalism. Uh, it was obviously status quo, but it was fighting for causes around the margins. Mm-hmm. That was an anomaly because everything that preceded it, it you know, it had it had worn its partisan colors fairly fairly. Fairly openly, I would kind of like to go back to those days um of b- before it became the the hallowed profession that it is. Before it was enshrined as you know, these guys are the the guardians of our democracy. The rest, whether really, you just had scrappy people who didn't have graduate degrees who were just reporting things and putting it in the paper. Those, if you look at the mm-hmm. papers of the twenties and the thirties, they're fantastically lively things to read. And they knew would how to write me- a lead. Yes, and they knew how to sling the lingo. Uh and they knew how to how to run a murder case for, you know... Those were the days when somebody would be murdered. They'd, they'd catch the guy in two weeks, put him on trial in three, and fry him in six. I mean, so you had stories that would go through. The, I would... Maybe I'm just naive, but do you think that there's actually a, a role for a paper version of that still? Because in other countries still have their tabloid newspapers that people love to read because there's something tactile and physical and, and involving about a newspaper that online is, is simply can't provide.
1: Yes, but as a rule, people are going to read that tabloid on the subway that mm-hmm. you can't drive and read it and I, right. and that's so it, there are a lot of cities you can go to and people are you get on the subway and people are reading a newspaper um in their, in and, and you know of course now I see people reading newspapers on their phones half the time right
2: mm-hmm. but
1: um I I mean I know exactly what you're talking about for the bias thing because now you watch all these uh, yeah I watch the I consume news all day. And you, there's basically this groupthink where people just don't understand that there's another point of view, and you see that with a lot of editors. You see that in the New York Times. You see it in the Post. That there's that they don't understand that they're that they're all thinking alike. They don't see it. They they look at some small difference they have with the person who has the desk across the way. And they think that's a big difference, and they don't understand the uniformity of thought that's happening in the business. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Especially when you when you when these people, these journalists, who previously would probably just you know talk to each other at the bar over the second martini, now they're on Twitter, where we hear every unmediated <laughs> thought coming up. Well let's go to the, to what you did when you were uh, when you were in the White House, since after all, the tr- Trump years is the subject of your podcast. A lot of people, and this may be a dumb question, I don't think it is, will look there at the job. There are no of, dumb
1: questions. There James. are no dumb
0: questions. No. Will look at the job of a White House house correspondent and say, What is the point? Somebody asks a good question, it's battered away with rote boilerplate nonsense, or somebody asks a fawning question and it's responded to with friendly little style. We, we long for a British you know, style of debate where they call the the leader of the country up and, and hammer him with questions for question time for the rest of it. And it's all articulate and brilliant and the rest of it. But ours just seems to be this kabuki, this, this, this mummery, this just show. What is the point?
1: That's a great question. And it's one of the reasons I did this podcast, because before I covered the White House, I never, ever thought I would cover the White House. And I was a media person who would watch the news conferences with the press secretary or the occasional press conferences with a president. And I'd critique the questions. And I thought that there are certain ways that things ought to be done. And I didn't understand why they worked the way they did. And then I'm there and I understand what you have to contend with. And that's why i that's why i put this together so um for example um there there i I'd, I'd see people ask questions i don't like it when they when people keep asking the same question over and over again you know you'll call on somebody in the second row and the and then somebody in the third row and the fourth row you, if they haven't answered it in three times they're not going to answer it the fifth hmm. it just doesn't work that way i always try to ask questions for which i can get an answer i didn't know that's something that's helpful uh but a lot of people do preen of course that's the other thing the front two rows lots of tv people and those they're 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 not asking a question for the answer they're they're asking a question so they can be seen on tv asking the question
2: mm-hmm. so
1: obviously they're going to be peacocks right and i was in the back of the room uh and it took me a while to get to the uh, uh, seat in the back of the room first i was standing in the in the aisles and so uh, if you watch the press conferences, uh, the news. Con- if you watch the briefings through the end, you'll see the way the ch- questions really change. Obviously, the first couple questions, you're also going to get more news of the day. Mm-hmm. People sort of have an idea of where that's going to go. As, as you get further back, we we all had our agendas. I mean, for, I asked a lot of questions about Nevada because I worked for the Las Vegas Review Journal. So I frequently wanted to know during COVID about uh, what kind of what, what was going to happen um uh, in terms of covid money for las vegas uh what was going to happen with casinos so those i mean the, that those were not general questions that interested a lot of people but they were important to the readers of the paper that was paying my salary the las vegas review journal um and you'll see that you know obviously that so that i mean that was the sort of thing that was different but i get what you're saying i would think why are you doing that and now i have a bit more of an understanding of why I'm not saying it's always right what you see believe me i don't think that way but people have a different agenda than you m- might have considered before
0: Who was the best of the trump administration spokespeople do you think at getting at, at dealing with the crowd and uh and and getting the message
1: out see i feel like if i say if i name who who i think was the best person i'm not doing that person a favor so it's like (laughs) nobody that's the sort of thing you can get in trouble for then
0: we'll just simply tell people to listen to the podcast and glean what they can from it so let let me put it a different let me put it a different way Mm -hmm. um did you did you have the the sort of feeling that that because the media is on the side of righteousness and goodness and superman and all the rest of it that you were required to take a fundamentally adversarial tone because it was trump as opposed to you know the whole speaking truth to power stuff that 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 anything that that seemed like a softball would be would disqualify you in the eyes of all of your peers there
1: well i didn't use an adversarial tone i didn't think that was a good way to get answers to questions in my view it's a lot easier to it's you get better results if you ask in a neutral tone or or even smiling so um i that's not something I did, and the people who did it—I mean, on a—I was saying I didn't do it once over four years, but as a rule, I just—I don't think it's an effective way to ask questions, and I think that you want to ask a question in a way that will elicit the best answer. Um, again, the t, now a lot of the TV people or people who want to be TV people who aren't yet mm-hmm. will do that, but that was not my shtick.
0: Question from the audience, from uh, Anonymous, and we don't mean the frightening V for Vendetta mask person, although I hope so, hope not. What was the biggest adjustment that you had to make between being a columnist and then being a reporter? Was it difficult for you to, to just back off on inserting yourself into these things?
1: Yes, it was, it was difficult. But um, here's, okay, so here's something that people might not have thought about. I don't know why you would, actually. So the White House is a beat. And that that my beat was the White House, which meant as a columnist, before I could write about anything, go off and something would interest me, I'd go off and do it. Obviously, to the extent that I was writing stories as as well as writing a weekly column, I was with the White House. Um, People often say to me, uh, they'll say things like, if you want to be a great investigative reporter, and what they don't know is actually, investigative reporter, that's a kind of reporter. A lot of investigative reporters I've known some who wrote five stories a year.
0: Right, right.
1: When you're when you're when you're covering the White House, you're writing practically every day.
2: Yeah.
1: I was probably writing I don't know probably five stories a week plus a column. So I so I had to turn things over quickly. I had to be on the news. Things that might have interested me as a columnist, I could say for the Sunday column I wrote, but obviously I'm looking to see what people want to know about so i was also a one person shop if you're watching a a briefing the people especially in the front rows they're with a wire service they're with a network they're with a big paper they're part of a big shop but i'm one person covering one beat so that again made it different what i'm looking for um the paper often would run stories from wire services on the front page as well or i would write them if they were you know but basically, I wanted to be on the front page as much, much as possible. Um, and that was one of my goals. And with Donald Trump, that was an easy goal to me because he was <laughs> incredibly, um, he, he was a gift that kept on giving.
0: If you had had the opportunity to sit down with him um, on his first day in the office, what would you have asked him?
1: Oh, uh, you know, I well, I had it written down. I think I wanted to know, I, I, so I actually would keep in my phone, I kept a list of questions at all times so that if I had a, mm-hmm. a, a senior moment, I wouldn't right. have to worry about it. I'd <laughs> just pull up my phone. I wanted to know if he really meant what he said. I, that was something I was curious about. I mean, again, there are policy questions you have. The problem with asking Trump policy questions is, he He can give you both answers at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. if you
1: were to say, "What do you think about Yucca Mountain, which is a nuclear waste nuclear
0: depository and
1: so th- you'd ask him a question, and you you'd often get different answers tariffs i mean he would he could t- say two or three different things. So asking Trump about uh, about policy, you didn't necessarily learn anything from his answer. So I interviewed Trump three times. The first few times I was with regional reporters, and um, we were at, we were asking him questions that had to do with where we were from, uh, you know, from our from, from our regional papers. And what was interesting about it was he really looked at people. So let's say I'm there with five or six other people. He paid attention to people. He was thoughtful. His answers were great. I mean, I thought he did a good job answering what we wanted to know. His staff was watching. Everybody was really mindful. And then I had, and it's the last, uh, it's episode six, the interview. I got my one exclusive interview with Donald Trump, and it was completely different from the other times. I'd been pushing and pushing for three and a half years, and I finally get it. And of course, I have to go to Las Vegas to do it. And Trump is is uh he's got, he has a rally in Las Vegas, and I am I believe I thought okay I'll go to his hotel room and I'll talk to him for a few minutes.
0: He was in his building, right? That gold bar.
2: The, on the...
1: That's right, the Trump yeah. Hotel. So I figured that's what I didn't even think of asking where are we were we going to do it. Then I'm told it's going to be after the rally he's having, which was in Henderson, and and by the way, this is in the middle of COVID. the place is packed um and then i find out no you're going to talk to him beforehand and then i find out it's five minutes
2: (laughs) no No. oh
1: so i had all sorts of i mean i'd spent one of the one of the people who worked in the press office looked at me and i know that they were pushing for me to get this i'd worked so hard for it and she said, "You've probably been working on those questions for like for two weeks. I'd st- all I did was work on these questions. And of course, when you find out you have five minutes, they're just out the window. So I asked him a foreign policy question. and then I started asking him about how he felt about being in a crowded giving a crowded rally during Covid because what else are you going to ask him? Right it, Right. So I started asking him about it and it, it made, you know, international news. People obviously caught it because he was saying to me that I was too close to him. He was concerned about me and I had a mask on and uh, he wanted me to wear a mask. And so um, it was just very different. And it was, I think, also, you know, it was a stressful time. It was September of 2020. And, oh, yeah. Um, we
0: remember it, that well. Great joy. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, anyway, so the first two times I, that, I mean, that Donald Trump made for an interview that people could learn something sort of about Trump they didn't know. Whereas my Nevada interview sort of told people what they thought. Hmm. That's the man I saw.
0: The first interview with the right with a with a group of people, mm-hmm. um I remember once we had uh, a fellow on who was a Washington correspondent for the National Review, and he went to the White House to have a group meeting with Obama and came back charmed. And we I, I ribbed them a little bit about that. That's like okay, well you've you know, you've gone over the you've you've been you've been sucked in you've gone over the dark side now, and <laughs> uh he subsequently quit National Review and went to the Washington Post, which sort of. Proving what I was saying. But anyway, um, I think I know some, who
1: you're talking about. Mm, yes.
0: I, yes. <laughs> nice guy. So um, did any of the people with whom, what was the feeling of the room with the, with the other reporters? Were they, I mean, I'm, I'm curious because surely that they'd all built themselves up. If some of them were of a disposition that we imagine they built themselves up to believe that here they are finally to, you know, to, to grapple in the den with the beast himself. Um, but at the same time, it's the president of the United States. So you're going to be a little cowed and the rest of it, and you've got to fight to keep from being charmed. I mean, what What was their mood? Were they apprehensive? Were they eager for the combat? What
1: um, I would, you know, again, this is uh, your regional reporters uh, are different than a lot of other reporters might be. So if this were, let's say, this were five network TV people with, the, and they'd all be vying to get their. We're We're trying to get a good story. I wanted to just, and I remember, um, I one. The second interview with him, I asked him about Dean Heller, the, the the GOP senator from Nevada who ended up losing. And he and Dean Heller had been fighting a little bit. So I got some stuff from him about Dean Heller. And we're all looking for something from our regions. So mm-hmm. in, in certain ways, we're not competing with each other. One questioner kept talking and talking and talking. And there was a, a female reporter who kept trying to get a question in and she couldn't. And Trump was laughing. You could see, like, he had a smile. He wasn't laughing at her. He thought it was funny. And again, this is just the kind of personality thing that you don't see uh-huh. with him a lot. So, um, no, I mean, people were... Everybody, we all knew what we wanted to do. We all wanted to have a really great story for the next day in the paper. And that's what we were all vying for.
0: Right. Well, dream question number two, then, perhaps... If you had the opportunity to be the last person to interview him in the White House, boxes packed, everything ready to go, and you've got five minutes, what do you ask (laughs) him?
1: In a way, who even gets a question? And <laughs> you're right. going to be hearing about how he really won all that
0: stuff. Probably so. Yes. You well, let's it. put it. Well, let me ask this because mm-hmm. it, it gets to regrets. Like, do you regret um, uh, not this not happening? At the wall, or do you do you go out uh, happy with your successes? A lot of people wondered exactly, and you can tell us now, as the White House correspondent, mm-hmm. the the extent to which the White House influenced the machinations of legislative legislature and passing the rest of it. And uh, whether or not he set an example that was followed by others, uh, some people seem to believe that there was a lot of, uh, you know, granular level interaction between the White House and the, and the legislative body to get things through. What was your sense of it, that the, the grunt work toward advancing the agenda uh, was done by the, the you know, the, the usual suspects, or that the administration itself was keenly involved in the struggle?
1: The problem if you worked for the administration and you really cared about le- about getting laws through is you didn't know if they were going to go through the way you thought they would. I mean, a lot of people would push for something, and they'd be blindsided. They'd get right up to the edge of what they wanted, and it would be taken away. I really think that Trump's moods were a great unknown for people who were working in that White House. So there are people who might have a—I uh, mean, Yucca Mountain being a great example where Trump, every— Every politician says they don't want they don't want Yucca Mountain to be built, right? They all said it, and he actually said something different um uh for for a while and you y- you weren't quite sure where he was going to go uh he wouldn't say that he wouldn't do it, and he didn't actually it's sort of odd I mean he didn't come out and say there will be no Yucca Mountain until twenty twenty so that was the kind of thing where and that that always amazed me because he he owned a hotel in Las Vegas. There aren't many hotel owners who want to have a nuclear waste repository some 50 miles from where their hotel is. Yeah, I think and, that's a
0: big mistake. I mean, they used to advertise, sit on the rooftop deck and watch the bombs go off in Vegas. Yeah. I mean, it's a fine tradition. I would say the so.
1: Atomic Cafe. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So... so um, So at any rate, um, I, I don't feel that they that the White House really was granular. I think that Trump would have ideas of what he wanted to do. He would convey those ideas, and he may or may not stick to them.
0: I was thinking the other day about Jesse Ventura, our, our sort of John the Baptist version. He came along before he was populist. Nobody expected him to win. He did. He didn't have a party, really. So he was at odds with everybody. But he came in with a very specific agenda, which was a real guy's agenda. I mean, he came in. One of the things he campaigned on, he said, um, you don't have to take your car to the emissions shop anymore. It's going to cost 100 bucks maximum to get your tabs Fireworks are going to be legal again, and we're going to build trains so you can go to the baseball game and get drunk and not have to worry about being pulled over on the way home. And that's what we got. I mean, and I always wondered if if Trump had come out swinging at the very start with a series of small things that nevertheless have directly affected people's lives and was personally responsible for getting them through. Whether or not that would have changed the tenor of the early years, of course, which were overtaken by. All the Russia stuff. Well, you saw um, in being in Washington. Okay, you you, from a distance, you know, you hear that this has been leaked, or sources say or the rest of it, mm-hmm. or there's a rumor that comes out of a hurled ashtray, or a, or a staffer treated poorly. When you got closer up to it, the things that you heard, um, when you got in there and saw the sausage made, did it change how you looked at this, or did it pretty much conform to what you believed was going on?
1: I'd never seen anything like this before, and I'd covered politics for, let's say, 30 years. I'd never seen anything like it, because usually people... What's the it?
0: Worked, What's the it that you've never seen? Before?
1: Well, the the, 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 the staff was, at, was working at Trump's whim, and they never knew what was coming next. So you didn't get the definitive answers that you might expect to get. You were asking who's the best press secretary. The press secretaries had a really tough time, because Trump watched... The, the the briefings every day he wanted to chime in about the briefings and he could change his mind so i it was it was just on
0: they would i've never kept, seen
1: anything like it where n- normally you, you know somebody who works for a senator or a governor and the governor has a very specific idea of what that per, you know what the governor wants what does he want to do what legislation does he want where will he draw the line but the trump people had no idea they just didn't know what he would I mean, they knew he wanted the wall. I mean there obviously there are certain things that Trump wanted. They knew how I felt about tariffs, but they also were not even negotiating something like a tariff. You, they didn't know where, if, if he was going to move the, the players around, if he was going to move the chess pieces. So that was something that just made, I think, it very difficult for him. I've never seen anything like it in politics.
0: So why the instability? Why the, why the? I mean, with Ronald Reagan, you pretty much knew where he stood, and there might be there's room to maneuver and negotiate. Mm-hmm. But with wildly divergent ideas coming out, what was the basis for that? Did you have the feeling that Trump was responding to the last person he talked to? or that he how much of it was that
1: that was part of it but also he just changed his mind and he talked to everybody i mean Mm -hmm. you you know you've heard the stories he he just called people all the time they try to you remember when john kelly became the chief of staff and the idea had been that we're gonna have you know people had to go through john kelly to get to the president no more walking by seeing the open door and going in and saying hi um So it was partly who we talked to last, but he just changed his mind and he liked watching people scramble to meet his new expectation. So if he wanted to go from A to B to C and everyone's running around, that made him feel impactful. So well, the, it certainly it, would.
0: Yeah. It certainly would be, but it would also be disruptive, and it would not result in anything getting done. I mean, if you're saying that he would he, his, he delighted in the the implicate of the the end result of his mercurial temperament. That's odd because that's not how you get things through. You have a fractured staff that doesn't know exactly what mes- message of the day is, and you have congressional aides and assistants who don't know exactly how to push it. That's it doesn't seem effective towards getting something done
1: it doesn't does it and one of the big jokes was infrastructure week every time they'd come out and say this is infrastructure mm-hmm. week mm-hmm. some crazy issue would come out of nowhere right oh i remember just, that was... i remember that
0: i remember that i think that was right before yeah, covid i think covid fell right squarely within infrastructure fortnight i think we're going to yeah we're going to shut down the infrastructure for two weeks to stop the spread i remember that infrastructure it was a bit of a joke And it seems every administration just does nothing. I'm always amazed that everybody's always passing and and touting these infrastructure bills as though one had never been passed since the Hoover Dam or maybe the Interstate uh, Highway Act as, as, as if there haven't been trillions showered on infrastructure, but yet it seems we're constantly always about to have the bridges of the nation thunder into the various rivers and creeks because we've done nothing. Well, so, Mercurial, you, based on your observation and measure of the man, predicted um, on a podcast, a ricochet, a Rick, the Ricochet flagship podcast, I believe, that Trump wasn't going to run again. Uh, and, well, we know how that goes. So what did you base that on, and do you think that something changed in him, or you called it wrong, or what?
1: I called it wrong. Um, let me just say, I didn't think he you saw the announcement he made he didn't seem like he was really into running did he he wasn't enthusiastic it wasn't the trump we're used to i just got the feeling that um and i'll and i i'll say the other thing i said i said i didn't think he'd run but i said if he did i don't think he's going to make it all the way to november of 2024. i don't know that he it, it, and i don't i, I don't think he's going to win the primary i could be really wrong i've been wrong about him before especially on this kind of thing, on the election thing. I, when I followed him in the White House, I could read him pretty well. But with all the moving parts with elections and other things, I, I, can, I can be wrong. But um, I, I just think that I remember when I went to the last NATO summit he attended in London. And I know I told you this story, so, but I kept telling my editors, you've got to send me to London. I just can tell Donald Trump wants to talk. He just wants to talk. And we get to and we get there. And during the these the NATO meetings, the press would the uh, the press pool would come in and do a pool spray. So normally for NATO, that's like a five minute thing, right? The press shout questions and the various world leaders answer, but Trump would not stop talking. So these pool sprays, that should be five minutes. There were like 20, 25 minutes. You know, they just kept going on and on. And everyone's talking about how long this is. And the 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 the, the NATO schedule, it's off an hour and a half by the end mm-hmm. of the day. Hmm. So I get there and I'm I go to the after these this sort of event, the president gives a press conference. I have a center, second row seat, totally ready. And he left. Hmm. He just was mad that everyone was laughing about how much he'd been talking. And you may recall. There was a video of Justin Trudeau and Macron and Angela Merkel, and they were joking about how much he'd been talking. Mm -hmm. And he just didn't like being dissed that way. And he just flew home on Air Force One early, just blew off the press conference. I see him doing that. If he runs, I don't think he's going to take off the way he wanted to. I think his timing for announcing that he was going to run was not good coming after the midterms. That was bad news for him. I think everyone, a lot of people, I mean, people are talking up Ron DeSantis. He looks better. I don't think Trump is going to be good about that. And I don't think he wants to go out there. If he can't destroy somebody with low energy Jeb mm-hmm. or some other nickname like that, and it doesn't destroy the, you know, Ron DeSantis isn't going to work.
0: Nah, it's kind of off his game.
1: So I just think if that happens, he'll lose interest.
0: There's the part about being shown up. I mean, part of the the not being happy that uh, Trudeau and Macron and Merkel are laughing at you is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's maybe just amateur psychological, amateur brain shrinking. But there's a part of him that's always Donnie from Queens, right? That the guy who was never respected by the Manhattan elite, the good people, the society, the four hundred, and the rest of it, because he was a loud brush talking son of a developer, and the rest of it, and didn't have—he you know, was Nicole Turney. He was an outlier. And there's uh, it, even though he's president of the frickin' United States, the same class of people is still laughing at him and not treating him with the respect that he believed that he uh, that he deserved. Well, oh, that,
1: that was something very uh, important to him. I remember the UN talk he made, and people were laughing at him. Uh, and I mean, there. It, 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 um, it, it, at any rate, he really wanted world leaders to respect him. And, and remember, Theresa May was the first world leader who came out to see him, British Prime Minister then, and he held her hand. Mm-hmm. He was trotting around holding her hand. It was. He was. He was proud. He was. He was very holding
0: proud. hands with Rocket Man too, wasn't he?
1: uh no well didn't,
0: okay i thought uh, i they were i thought they were i thought they were i thought they were holding hands or maybe it was a saudi thing that's interesting i never th- I, I never thought about you're th- that you're so thinking
1: of biden fist bumping mbs
0: <laughs> probably so two right and we shall of course uh, hold them completely responsible for the death of the washington post journalist which he wasn't and then of course uh, we're not going to do anything about that uh yes when you say foreign policy and he was out there talking, um, did the staff have this sense or the the worry that there would be some completely out of the blue shift in foreign policy that was going to come out of him because he had the spotlight in the microphone and a full head of steam? And, and and mind you, some of those shifts in foreign policy like, hey, you know what? NATO should pay their fair share. That's uh, I'll take it. I prefer a president to say, we're going to give Poland the missiles to defend themselves, as opposed to the president who says, we're going to take them away. But was the staff worried about um, the implications of what he might say? Or was it just a staff simply saying, oh, this is just going to be so much
1: work? So imagine the foreign policy people, they're specialists. They were there before Trump. They'll be there after Trump. And so you might call people,
0: them the state, the something state of the word. deep I'm trying state. To think of it. Oh, there's the word. Yes. The
1: deep state. That's right. They're the deep state.
0: The blob. I think is we use. <laughs> awesome.
1: So imagine if you're one of those people, what it must be like watching Trump going to a conference like this. I remember the first one, um, NATO in Brussels, on um, the first trip that he made, that started off in Riyadh, and he was supposed to say something about Article Five, the one for all, all for one. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, amendment that basically says we're going to take care of each other and we're in NATO, and he didn't say it it was on a script he just didn't say it Hmm. so and that was something that i think took two weeks maybe don't hold me to it but they it took him a bit to roll it back and then he did put it into another official speech but there was always this wonder about what what is he going to do and uh, and it was and for if you're a, a deep state foreign policy person imagine how much more stressful it is than if you're i don't know dealing with a fiscal issue a tax issue
0: right do you think that was because he just didn't like it or just didn't want to talk about it i mean that's a foundational concept of nato um, and if, if, somebody doesn't say it, I guess you could say wrapped with other statements and sentiments and emanations of penumbras that one could say that his refusal to mention it meant that there was repudiation somewhere in his head. But was, was, was that, was that a proper judgment to make from that? Or was it just like, he's wants to talk about something else?
1: Well, he hated NATO. I mean, he did. And he'd always talk about how he's going to get the, the, the member states to pay the United States, which of course, that's not how it works. NATO, not to pay us, th- but to pay,
2: you're th- supposed they to pay spend
1: their, right. at, like 3% of your GDP on, on defense and they weren't doing it, but the, he kept saying he's going to get them to pay us. And that's the other thing about writing about Donald Trump is he has expressions and you're always translating for him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you don't want to, I mean that was one of the r- r- real um, you don't want to seem like you're correcting the president all the time but you also have to explain what it means somewhere.
0: So I guess what I'm saying, if I can take away from this, is that when people think of the administration who are not themselves, you know, people who are not um, um, start to finish Trump people who will vote for him under any circumstances and regard him as, you know, great, savior and all the rest of that. You know what we're talking about. People who are, you know, Trump people. And I, I don't say that with any, um, approbation whatsoever. I mean, I, I know Trump people. My dad was a Trump guy. I mean, so yeah, I mean, but the Trump, the, the, the hardcore Trump supporters, um, what maybe we're getting from this is that the feeling of chaos that seemed to arise from this was not necessarily because you had an adversarial press corps that was doing its part to sow discord everywhere, but there actually was just an, an element of chaos spinning at the center of the administration itself that lent itself. to Because it that's what I recall, I, not just the Russiagate, not just the constant um, work that was being done to get rid of this guy because I hated him. But just the sense of of no of a of a lack of center uh, it, that that it, at the core of it was this spinning thing. You're saying that maybe Trump himself might have been the spinning thing that generated that that uh, that atmosphere.
1: Yeah, And let me just say, um, there are a lot of great things about Donald Trump as president. The Abraham Accords mm-hmm. is, is, is one example. I mean, his foreign policy. A lot of we can we we talked about NATO, but the the Abraham Accords made a big difference. And a lot of people were saying that uh, when he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, that everything was going to go to seed over there, that there was going to be violence. It didn't happen.
0: And that's because the block, you know, the the very professional core of uh, foreign office people, the State Department people, they're wrong. They are they they are basing their decisions based on what other people (laughs) in the foreign uh, state department of course of their respective companies they're also they also hate the jews but that's another thing um yeah that was the abraham accords the 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 the, um the embassy the the polish decision the the expansion of the end the at least the unshackling of the energy uh the the idea if not that if every uh, you know regulation of the epa was rolled back at least the sense that the regulatory boot had been lifted for a for a for a duration, made a great impact on unleashing the the raw animal spirits of the of the economy.
1: But so yeah, just, we... that first foreign trip was amazing. What president would start off in Riyadh
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then go to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and then go um, to Rome, and then Brussels, and then Sicily? But it was it was it was designed to be completely different than anything else you would see. Usually a president will go within North America for the first trip. Um, Barack Obama made a point of not going to Europe right away. He wanted to make a statement that way. And Trump did go to Europe in the first trip, but he started off in the Middle East.
0: Are you back with us? Sorry, yes. Deb, we lost you for a second. I, and I said, the reason that your internet was cut out was because when you mentioned Riyadh, that brought to mind the orb around which the glowing orb around which they all <laughs> stood and and gleaned some sort of otherworldly energy that affected, uh, you know, could, could have been a portal into some alternate dimension of the rest of it. We don't know. I guess we don't know. So what you're telling me, Deb Son, is that after four years covering this administration in Washington, you can't tell us what sort of energy emanated from the orb in Saudi Arabia. Can you? Can you? Did you even ask?
1: I didn't ask. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm a failure. Uh uh-huh,
0: Uh huh. Well, asked and answered as far as the other questions go, as they say in a law court. I would love to talk to you for three hours more, um, and maybe someday next when I'm out in D.C., I'd love to have coffee and uh, and just talk about it more because I like the way you look at the industry. I, I think we're vets in the same sense, and um, just an interesting, calm person to talk about, about these things. And maybe we'll have you next on to talk about anything except politics and Trump. So come <laughs> up with something you'd like to talk about, it be it opera or crocheting or horse riding or bikes or gardening or whatever. Maybe we'll have part two of No Dumb Questions with Deb Saunders, uh, collecting baseball cards from the 19th. Well, you know, you come up with the topic. Anyway, thanks to everybody who's listening and has listened and will listen in the future. And I remind you that this is a product of the Ricochet Audio Network, which has more podcasts than you can shake a find a stick Shake it. We got more podcasts than that, and you'll find them at ricochet.com, where you too, if you sign up and join for just mere pence, just a tiny amount of money, you have access to competing with some of the most interesting, accomplished, funny, smart people you'll find on the internet. That's ricochet.com, but that's in the member feed. You got to pay to get there we'll see you at ricochet we'll see you this week for our flagship podcast i have no idea who we're talking about but i guarantee that rob long and peter robinson will have tons of great questions and i periodically will break in with an advertisement thanks for listening again i'm james linux with deb saunders and we'll see you in the comments at ricochet 4.0 thanks deb
1: thank you thank you